Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, I'm Kelvin Cheetle, Director of Capstick's HR Advisory Service. Welcome to the third in our series of podcasts on the workforce of 2020. In this series, we're interviewing workforce leaders to get their views about what the workforce of 2020 will look like. Today, I'm very pleased to have as our guest Danny Mortimer, the Chief Executive of NHS Employers. So, Danny, given the current agenda, devolution, five-year forward view, new models of care, can you give us your thoughts on what the workforce of 2020 will look like? Will it be very different to that that we have today? There's a risk at the moment, particularly because we're talking about the forward view and STPs and integrating care, that the discussion we have about the workforce rightly emphasises the things we're going to have to do differently and the way in which people are going to have to work differently. But actually, we're still going to have intensive care units that need the clinical skills of the staff who work within them. We're still going to have emergency departments, maternity services, acute psychiatric units. And those people, whilst their practice will develop and change as technology changes and as our understanding of what we can do for our patients um, changes, actually a lot of their work in four years' time will be virtually identical to what it is now. So we have to find a balance there. One of our particular focuses here at NHS Employers is that whole area around staff engagement and the, the variation that we see in staff experience. So to just choose three examples, um, we do know with some distress we know, but we need to do something about it. The experience of our BME colleagues is very different to colleagues like, like myself. Yeah. We have to do something about that. And that has to be different by 2020. We also know that too many of our colleagues report being bullied either by their peers or by their manager or by their organisation or by organisations they deal with. And we have to do something about that. that that's something off in our culture that mm. must affect our patients. And that has to be sorted well before 2020. And there's a third thing, which is we still see that variation too much now. We're better than we were, but we, we see that variation in terms of how engaged staff feel in the, the work of their organisation, how, how we make best use of their talent and insights in terms of improvement. So I'm as much interested in those areas as I am in new roles and extended and advanced practice. Um, we interviewed Dean Rawls in the first of the series, and he says, the key to unlocking the future is that local engagement, both in terms of recruitment, staff development, culture. Is that, do you share that view from what you're saying? My experience, particularly as a, as a director in Nottingham, was that that recognition that we had to use the insights and talents of our staff much more effectively, our frontline colleagues in particular, was the thing that made the most difference to our performance as an organisation. Um, and as we looked around the NHS and particularly looked around the world, the best organisations, and we aspired to be the best organisation, um, that's what they did. Our job as managers and leaders is to help the experts, the real experts about clinical processes and clinical services, recognise where they can make improvements and then help them make the improvements rather than them feel like we're doing it to them. I guess the bit that I would stress is that the literature I've seen and the experience I've had personally is that engagement is an outcome. It's about how staff feel about their workplace. It's not an event 
I think there's a risk sometimes that people think, well, once a year we'll engage with our staff, you know, we'll, we'll hold some events and that's engagement. Um, and there's real benefit in trying to focus on that feeling of engagement rather than sort of seeing it as an episodic thing. Can I continue the theme on some of those softer engagement issues? So at the moment there's a big national campaign around Speak Up. What part do you think that has to play in trying to get at some of these deep-rooted bullying issues that you've alluded to? I think there's still a huge amount we need to do in terms of just normalising the giving and receiving of feedback in our workplaces. And I think there are already examples of processes that help teams give and receive feedback. So if you look at safer surgery and the WHO work around that, I've seen that start to affect the way in which theatre teams give each other feedback routinely, you know, with, about the job that's in front of them, the patient that's in front of them. I've seen the same work, a colleague called Mark Simmons in Nottingham, who's done a, used technology to have a, a kind of real-time audit and feedback around sepsis to clinicians, which has really affected their practice. And it's about making that feedback about what's going well, what could be better, what are the lessons we need to learn about what went wrong or about near misses. It's about making that just normal and routine. Now that doesn't avoid entirely the situations where people have raised that feedback and they feel it's been ignored or dismissed. And so we still need that safe place in organisations where people can raise concerns and can be supported to do it so we can tackle the issues and, and protect our, our patients. Um, I'd like to turn our attention to a slightly more prosaic HR territory and talk a bit about structures. So agenda for change, training regimes. How do you see those nationally negotiated structures playing out in the new health economy of 2020. Um, do, you, do you think that's a national prescription or should it be allowed to happen organically at a local level? From a national perspective, there are um, compelling reasons to maintain a national infrastructure. Um, some of those are financial. You know, the Treasury in particular, I think, sees the value in having a kind of national pay system because they worry about costs drifting in, in localised systems. Our trade unions still absolutely see the value in, an, in a national system. Uh, they see fairness in that. They see um, um, uh, greater protection for their members in, in that. And I think employers, by and large at the moment, also see a value in a, in a national approach because it, it um, protects them from you know, some of the kind of um, uh, more challenging things they may find in a kind of a marketised economy. Uh, and actually we do, particularly for our regulated clinical staff, we do, we do employ the same people. They do move between our organisations fairly, fairly naturally. We are a, a defined sector. My second observation, and there's a tension between the two, is that at a local level, and if you look at um, you know, the Manchester example and others that will follow it, there is clearly an interest in how a, a public sector workforce is seen far more on a place basis. So that actually the division between healthcare and social care, between health and care and other public services, whether it's police or education or whatever it may be, that those are kind of blurred or removed to the benefit of the community in Greater Manchester, wherever it may be. You can't start that kind of development of a new way of working and a new way of delivering services by looking at contracts first. That's the wrong place to start, actually. You have to start with the vision for services, and that's my experience of where our colleagues in Manchester are starting is that what's that vision for services? Do you see Manchester forming a 
a national template for devolution or do you think it will be area by area, city by city, given that as you've accurately described there's such a mixed economy of workforce at play in these places? I think most things we need to do, whether it's in paying contracts or other thing, or other areas of workforce development, actually the, the innovation will take place in localities. It, it won't take place uh, at NHS employers or in Richmond House or, where, or wherever it may be. It will take place locally. And then um, there may well be things that develop in Manchester or wherever that, that sort of set new archetypes for other parts of the country. Um, and then our job nationally will be to kind of learn the lessons and help realise those things. And this isn't just the point about paying contracts, it's more, more, I mean it much more broadly than that. And sometimes it might be about us getting out of the way, frankly. Um, and we need to kind of see how it, how it develops over this next, this next period. Um, and in some ways, um, you know, what I see the Manchester guys doing is, is developing the kind of systems and ways of working that enable them to kind of answer some of those questions. I couldn't have an interview with you without touching on the issue of um, affecting change with the trade unions, given your role in the junior doctor's contract changes. Given the changes that we have ahead, how do we work better with staff side and trade unions to um, carry that change through in a way that is more consensual, if I can use that term? The lesson I learnt in 15 years as a, as a HR director, 15 and a half years as a HR director, is actually it's about developing a relationship locally with your, with your trade unions. I mean, organisations like mine can play our part in terms of national and regional relationships, but that local relationship um, is part of the staff engagement piece we talked about earlier. It's about absolutely being prepared to have conversations early. It's about being able to have conversations when your thoughts are half formed or probably not even formed at all. And I think the risk is that often we feel, as HR directors, and and I see it in some of my national colleagues as well, that actually what we have to do is almost have every word written uh, and the ink be almost dry on a a plan before we take it to the trade unions. Um, And actually that's the worst thing to do. It's better to go early and say, look, it's a relatively blank page in terms of what we need to do. What do you think? What do your members think? How can we involve you in this? Do you want to be involved? And sometimes they don't, they can't be, they feel they're not able to be involved. And it's about, it's about that kind of mindset. And the colleagues that do this best, that's what they do. It's about regular and early, you know, formative conversations with, with trade union colleagues. And I think, in my experience, trade union colleagues respond really positively to that. You're in a fairly unique position, there is no other job like yours in, in the NHS, in the HR community. What's been your major learning from it? Is it the job you expected it to be when you first started? I think there's been a sense in which I've, I've packed into um, nine months a set of experiences that I probably imagined would take five years to, to accumulate and, and, and live through. And I've also packed in some experiences that I never wanted to to have in terms of where we find ourselves. So, so that has been unexpected and um, difficult. Interesting at times, but also very difficult at, at times. And I think there was always a sense that, you know, I, I inherited a, a strong organisation in terms of the team that Dean left, and that's been my experience. Um, but also the agenda has changed quite rapidly in this last 18 months. We've had the forward view. We've had, um, I think, an unprecedented set of pressures on on the services we we provide in spite of the extra investment there's been 
Um, and I think some of the workforce issues and challenges that we face have come into starker relief because of that. Um, and I think part of my, my job is to remind the system that many of the, the answers to many of the workforce challenges they face are already in the NHS. We've just got to find those answers and, and kind of replicate them at scale and at pace. How do you view your relationship with workforce directors across the country, having been a very successful one yourself? How do you view that relationship going forward? One of the attractions of the job was, and still is, that that's a real privilege, actually, to, to be able to work on behalf of colleagues. I've worked my entire, my entire career in the NHS, and, and actually, you know, I, I've, I was really fortunate to work with some fantastic colleagues over the year, and I'm even more fortunate now because I work with all, all those directors across, across England. Um, and it's, it's a really, a really strong um, and effective community. Um, and if I had a frustration, and, and, and HR colleagues have heard me say this, both when I was at NHS Employers, but also before I joined NHS Employers, I, I think actually it's a community that undersells its, its contribution. Um, and that's not unique to the NHS. Because we are the type of profession we are, we kind of navel-gaze just that wee bit too much. And we doubt ourselves just that wee bit too much. Um, and um, actually we, we should be more assertive, more confident in terms of, our, of the contribution I've experienced us making and I see my colleagues making all the time. Danny, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us this morning. Nice to talk to you. Next up in our series of podcasts on the workforce of 2020 is an interview with Deborah Tarrant. Deborah is the current president of HPMA and a leading figure in the NHS workforce. We'll be talking to Deborah about both her trust experience as a leading workforce director and her role as the leader of HR directors in the NHS in her HPMA role. We look forward to seeing you next time.